Hey everyone, welcome back to Philosophy for the Modern Mind, the podcast where we investigate and share pra- practical philosophies to help you live a happy and fulfilling life. Today we have an incredibly special episode featuring a renowned cognitive behavioral therapist and Stoke philosopher Donald Robertson. Donald, Donald Robertson is widely recognized for his expertise in applying the principles of Stoke philosophy to modern psychological therapy. With a deep understanding of both ancient wisdom and contemporary psychological techniques, he has helped countless individuals navigate the challenges of life. Donald Robertson has written several highly acclaimed books, including Stoicism and the Art of Happiness and How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. These works have resonated with a wide, seeking, wide audience seeking practical guidance on incorporating Stoic principles into their daily lives. Through his insightful writings and engaging presentations, Donald Robertson has become a leading figure in the revival of Stoicism in the 21st century. I'm truly thrilled to have him as our guest today, as his expertise in Stoicism and cognitive behavioral therapy makes him the perfect fit for philosophy for the modern mind. Welcome, Donald Robertson. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I think your story is very interesting because Mm -hmm. um, growing up, you discovered philosophy and you were interested in philosophy, um, Mm -hmm. but then you kind of turned and pivoted to yeah. cognitive behavioral therapy as a more practical outlet for this interest. Is that, is that correct? Basically. Yeah, you're right. And so what, what I guess garnered that shift? Did you think that the therapy that, or the philosophy that you were looking into was a bit too um, theoretical and impractical? Yeah, basically you've hit the nail on the yeah. head. So I actually started off somehow being interested in, I think three main things when I was like 15, 16, 17, I was into personal development stuff. Mm. And I got into philosophy and I got into psychotherapy and self-help type stuff. And I was also into meditation and I was interested in yoga and uh, Buddhist meditation and stuff like that. And also self-hypnosis. So into the philosophy, um, the therapy stuff like that, I was reading Freud and Jung and into the kind of psychological techniques and i studied existentialism at university yeah. and i studied freudian psychoanalysis and laconian psychoanalysis um and i was trying to combine these things together but it wasn't really working for me and the it seemed very too confusing and too abstract and too theoretical and then i discovered stoic philosophy and suddenly i had a kind of light bulb went on it had a, an aha moment or an epiphany and i thought stoicism kind of is exactly what i'm looking for it combines the philosophy it's got um kind of a connection with psychotherapy with cognitive behavioral therapy and there are contemplative practices and meditation techniques that you find in stoicism as well it's all rolled together into one integrated system that's actually quite down to earth and simple and so I completely shifted from studying existentialism and Freudian psychoanalysis to studying stoicism and CBT. That's amazing. Um, one thing actually that I've been thinking about a lot, and mm-hmm. I really wanted to ask for your thoughts on it, is that I find that, like especially in my generation, therapy has become much more accepted and destigmatized. Mm-hmm. And you know, plenty of my friends um, and and people I know do clinical behavioral therapy specifically. Uh-huh. Um, but I find that when I talk to peers and again, people in my generation, nobody's really super interested in philosophy. I mean, I think for the same reasons, which is that they, they think it is uh-huh. very theoretical and uh-huh. um, just like the pastime of, of scholars, right? So why do you think that people are w- willing to like accept therapy in order to better their lives, but they don't look at 
practical philosophy as much. I guess, like you said, you know, maybe their conception of philosophy is that it's abstract and academic. I mean, if you go to university, there may be some exceptions to this now, but generally speaking, the Stoics weren't included on uh, the undergraduate, typical undergraduate curriculum. You study everything except Stoicism. I also even study Epicureanism or other kind of practical um, aspects of, of ancient philosophy. And so what you get is this really technical, bookish, abstract stuff. It's no longer a way of life like it was in the ancient world. Uh, ancient philosophy in the West was kind of like a Western yoga in a sense, it was a, a lifestyle. If you, I mean, there's things I take for granted now that I think many people perhaps still don't realize. But in the ancient world, if you saw a philosopher, you'd pro- often you'd be able to recognize them in the street because of the way that they were dressed and the way that they spoke and the way they behaved. Like you'd recognize a monk or something, you know, like they, they lived a different lifestyle. Most, not always, but uh, in many cases, they went barefoot. They wore a particular type of robe made from undyed wool. Um, they often carried a, a cane or staff, like a wizard or something, almost like Gandalf a bit. <laughs> like, um, and so, and they grew their beards in particular styles. You, you'd recognise one if you spotted them. And that's gone now. Now philosophy is something you mainly do in university libraries and seminar rooms, and it's become a much more bookish subject. So I think that puts people off. Um, but I think people still have a craving for something like philosophy. They want meaning they want to understand life people are interested still interested in buddhism and mysticism and new age stuff and things like that they're kind of looking for something more than cbt offers them i find they want they're craving um there's something odd about cbt that part of the success of cognitive therapy is that it it became unlike freudian and other earlier therapies which could go on indefinitely CBT said it was not going to do that and it was going to be time limited, Nor, not always, but generally like it's meant to be you know, a few months or whatever and you achieve certain goals and then you stop. And one reason for that is to stop the risk of the therapists financially exploiting their clients by making them too dependent on the therapy. Um, but in doing that, modern therapy potentially also becomes more modest in its goals in a way and less concerned with transforming our our life uh, as a whole. But when people come out of therapy, if it's benefited them, ironically, they're even more inclined to think if questioning my underlying beliefs and doing these other strategies helps me get rid of my panic attacks or whatever on my social anxiety, surely some of these ideas and practices would apply to life in general. And surely, you know, why isn't there a, a way of life um, that's kind of based on exploring these ideas? And if there was, it would be like more like Stoicism, perhaps Stoicism offers something like that is broader in scope. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you kind of describe my journey in, into becoming interested in philosophy, which is, you know, I, I wanted to discover some more meaning or purpose in my life. And it was hard for me to grasp onto religion um, and the idea of, you know, a, a God-like figure. So, and then I discovered that philosophy has a similar style of like rules for life and ways yeah. to live live your life um, without you having to believe in this all-powerful being. Um, I'll tell you why 
people, you know, exactly echoing exactly what you say. Like over the years, I've been fortunate enough to speak to many, many people, thousands and thousands of people again to stoicism. So I can sum up what they say. And we've touched on a couple of the reasons that they come to stoicism already. And one of them is they'll say they see stoicism as a kind of Western yoga or Western alternative to Buddhism. So for many people who, who live in the West or grown up in the West, it, it's maybe more consistent with, more familiar, more consistent with our cultural norms and values than Taoism or Buddhism or Hinduism might be, for example. Um, and so that's something that they get from it. And similarly, they often say they see Stoicism as a secular alternative to Christianity. So maybe they're atheists or agnostics, or they just, you know, they're not drawn to Christianity as such, but they want something that f- gives them a, a way of life in, in a similar way. And Stoicism resembles Christianity. It was one of the influences on early Christianity, but it doesn't require um, faith-based belief in, in God. It's a philosophy rather than a religion. And as we said already, some people are drawn to it because they want a more down-to-earth alternative to academic philosophy or because they want a more philosophical alternative to self-help and psychotherapy. And those are the main reasons that people usually give for being interested in it, especially younger people. But there's another reason they give, which is slightly different. And so many people say that they feel like they need, in the age of the internet, they're being bombarded with misinformation. And I I think, I don't know if they'd frame it like this, but I think most people intuit at some level that they're being kind of played a bit. They're being manipulated mm. by the news media, by social media influencers, by social networks. And the social media is getting more intelligent. AI is going to probably very rapidly become much better at manipulating people and to captivate their attention and market things to them and influence the culture. And I think uh, more and more people that are reasonably tech-savvy, younger people in particular, feel that they need to somehow protect themselves against this barrage of manipulation that they're sub- we've always been subjected to. You know, in the old in, in the past, there were con men. They were political orators, you know. They were your, your buddy trying to get you to lend them money. They, they, you know, we've always had people trying to persuade us of things and manipulate us. Um, but now technology has astronomically, you know, heightened that problem. I think. And the other, so the other reason that people come to philosophy and stoicism is they're looking for grasping for some way of dealing with that and protecting themselves against this uh, kind of brainwashing, propaganda, manipulation, um, or, to put it another way, against sophistry, right? which is what ancient philosophy evolved in part as a defense against. So now, you know, sophistry is back with a vengeance, um, aided by modern uh, technology. And, you know, I think people sense that they need to somehow do something to defend themselves against it for sure yeah i mean the the sophists have just have i mean with technology it's a new medium and it's just so effective these days it's really difficult to combat it to your point um and one thing i wanted to one of the main things i kind of want to talk to you about is um for the younger like i'm 17 you know for younger people my age high school and college um who 
aren't so aware of philosophy and particularly stoicism like what what aspects of stoicism are so practical do you think well first of all stoicism was a philosophy that flourished for about 500 years in the ancient world and so it's big it's big philosophy like um and it has the first book i wrote on it i tried to list the main psychological strategies i could find and there were about 18 that i identified and there's probably more um, so it does lots of things, but I'll give you some examples of how it might help us to combat sophistry, manipulation, or to build emotional resilience, which is one of the main things that uh, people want to get from it. It's kind of a, an allied uh, benefit that they see in it. So the Stoics believed that our it's our thinking, our beliefs, that cause our emotions to a large extent. And that's what cognitive therapy took from stoicism. So that basic idea has now been supported by thousands of modern research studies, right? It's not the only thing that determines your emotions, but your beliefs shape your emotions more than most people normally realize. And it's a big deal because once you realize that emotions are cognitive, it opens up a, a whole toolbox of techniques that you can use um, because cognitions have propositional value. They're true or false. So if I just think anxiety is like a energy or a blob of emotion, I don't know, what do I do with it? Do I try and vent it? Do I try and suppress it? Do I try and distract myself from it? The strategies that we, we use are, are very crude if we think of anxiety as being a kind of shapeless blob of energy. But and then that, that's I'm trying to capture how people normally sort of naively think about their emotions. But if we think anxiety is based on beliefs, and for instance, believing that something awful is about to happen and that you probably won't be able to cope with it, um, that's called the transactional model of stress. It's the basis of the cognitive model of anxiety. Then you could be wrong about a bunch of those things. You might be overestimating the probability that something bad is going to happen. You might be overestimating the severity. Maybe it wouldn't be as bad as you think. You might be underestimating your coping ability. Maybe you'd be more able to deal with it than you realize. So you could just be wrong or mistaken about certain things. Your view of it could be distorted. And, and actually strong emotions inherently distort our thinking. Um, so the Stoics knew this, and many other tools revolve around changing our perspective and questioning our, our beliefs. So the first thing they'd say to us is you have to notice what the beliefs are that are causing your anger, that are causing your anxiety, that are causing your depression. And then you can start questioning them and asking yourself uh, if there's more realistic, accurate, constructive ways of viewing the same situation. And the Stoics might say, we uh, often engage in selective thinking um, so we take things out of context when we're really upset. Like if somebody calls you an idiot and you, you'll get angry with them, um, and the more then you'll start focusing more and more on things that they're doing wrong. But you might forget that the guy that called you an idiot, you know, gives a lot of money to charity and just helped an old lady across the road and has been your best friend for years. And maybe there's lots of other things that would moderate your anger towards that person. But that you forget about that. Like when they, they say something that upsets you. So engage in narrow, selective thinking. And the Stoics would say we need to broaden our perspective to defend ourselves against that. So they practice a technique that modern scholars call the view from above, which consists in stretching our perspective to try and look at things from a, a more expansive 
uh, point of view to prevent this problem of the narrowing uh, down of our attention and the um, cherry picking information or making it more filtered or more selective. We try to uh, do the opposite of that. And there's also a technique that's uh, actually I want to explain if you if you permit me. Um, one of the most important techniques in modern cognitive therapy. Um, we usually call cognitive diffusion or cognitive distancing. Mm. And it's a subtle technique, so it's worth explaining. If you were to ask me what do I think we should teach young people, there's several things. Um, first of all, to understand that your emotions aren't simple, like they're complex. The anger is a cake that's baked of many different ingredients. And once you understand that, you can start changing the recipe. Right? But you have to understand that there's... It's a combination of different thoughts and different sensations and different action tendencies that are combining. That gives you more control over it, particularly the, the beliefs and the thoughts that contribute to our emotions. But then one of the most powerful tools at your disposal is the ability to notice the beliefs that cause your emotions and to view them with detachment. Um, almost as if you're taking a step to one side and observing yourself having those thoughts like, so if you get angry with someone because you think this guy's just a total idiot, you might take a step to one side and imagine that you can see yourself and you might say, Donald is telling himself that that guy's a complete idiot. Like, and as he tells that to himself, it's making him angrier and angrier. And I'm now viewing myself almost like I'd look at a stranger and observe their behavior. But our, we're capable of doing that. And that shift in perspective, which we call cognitive distancing or cognitive defusing, we, we now know is one of the most versatile and one of the most powerful tools that we can use to defend ourselves against uh, unhealthy emotions and, and also against emotional manipulation. Yeah, I'm really actually glad you touched on that as well as the view from above, because um, I've been reading your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. I have it here with me. Um, and that was something that really stood out to me. I thought that was a really interesting and and beneficial technique. Um, the other thing from the book that I wanted to ask you about is this idea of catastrophizing yeah. versus decatastrophizing. So uh -huh. can you um, talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I'll go a little bit. Let's take a step further back into history. There was a guy mm -hmm. called Alfred Kozabski who developed a kind of weird self-improvement movement, for want of a better way of describing it, called general semantics. It was based around linguistics. He was an engineer. Um, and in the you know the start of the 20th century, the middle of the 20th century, it was very popular. And it's kind of got forgotten about. It was popular in America. didn't have as much of an impact in Europe. And then it kind of faded from popularity as CBT was becoming more popular. Um, but Kozybski rightfully said that uh, the way that we use language constrains our thinking. And we don't think enough about the limits that we place in our, our, our psychological life by the language that we use. Um, and we tend to use nouns for things that we could describe using verbs. So I say, for example, um, or we use nouns or adjectives. So we might say, I have depression, or I am depressed. Um, and Kozybski said, it would be better to say um, that I'm depressing myself. And to think of why don't we describe it as an activity that we're engaged in? Why why is it uh, seem like something that's passively happening to us? It would be the difference between saying I am tense 
and saying, I am tensing. Like, because if you say I'm tensing my, my body or I'm depressing my mind, then it prompts another series of questions. Like, well, how are you doing that? Like, why are you doing it? When and where do you do that? Why do you stop doing it? Like, and it makes us take more ownership and more responsibility um, for things. So it's dangerous to lapse into this way of describing uh, psychological states in particular or behavior as if they're reified, like they're just qualities that are, are fixed. And so the most common example of that is that people say, my girlfriend dumped me or, you know, I lost my job and it's it's a catastrophe. It, or they say it's, it's just awful. And therapists traditionally have said, well, can we view this as a psychological activity that you're engaged in, that you're choosing to view it this way? So are you catastrophizing the event? Are you awfulizing the end of your relationship? You're projecting these values onto it. It's neither inherently good nor bad. Like, you know, certainly other people might view it as bad, but not catastrophic. Or they might view it as bad, but only temporarily so. Or they might view it even as bad, but leading on to positive opportunities if they expand their perspective on it. Or you yourself in the future, looking back on it 10 years from now, might think, well, I my girlfriend dumped me 10 years ago. Like, But in retrospect, it doesn't seem like a huge catastrophe. It just seems like it kind of sucked. And then I met someone else and... You know, life goes on and maybe I went on and met someone better, like that I was much happier with, right? So in, in retrospect, you you yourself will probably view things as less catastrophic. Um, so realize, using the verb catastrophizing, this weird neologism, encourages us to take more ownership and more responsibility for the values that we're projecting onto events and to realize that there's, there's some wiggle room, there's some cognitive flexibility that we could... We don't have to view it as a catastrophe. We could potentially view it from a number of other plausible perspectives and indeed probably will view it differently at some point in the future. And there's some subtle things going on here. Because you might initially think, okay, so the secret is that I somehow have to claw my way to this other perspective and then I'm going to feel better, right? But actually there's a benefit that's more subtle, which as soon as you realize that you're projecting it, you you gain cognitive distance. And that itself, just the simple realization that this, this situation isn't inherently awful. I'm choosing to, to view it as awful. I could carry on choosing to view it as awful, but it dilutes the intensity of our emotions when we realize it's something that we're actively engaged in. That's That realization itself will tend to... Uh, dilute the intensity of our emotions. And also the realization that I could view it a number of other ways will tend to, to take the edge of the anger or the sadness or the anxiety that we feel. And then the first thing that people re report when you use these techniques is because the most obvious thing is that their emotions become less intense. So woohoo, that's why people go into therapy, right? They want to be let they want to suffer less, right? But I'm actually more interested in another benefit that accrues from it that's less obvious, which is that as soon as people realize they're catastrophizing an event and that there are other ways of viewing it, they gain cognitive flexibility that contributes to creative problem solving. So when people are really angry or really upset about something, they get kind of tunnel vision. They get locked into a particular way. And not only does that make them more upset, but it makes them rubbish uh, thinking creatively. 
about solutions, you may notice that in life. You know, when someone's really, really infuriated and angry about something, often they can't really see different ways forward. Like, and often when you're able to get detached, suddenly solutions seem more obvious. You think, well, I could do this or I could do that. So it improves our planning, creative thinking, and coping behavior. And in the long term, that's actually, I think, more important than the short term reduction in the intensity of our, our distress. Because when we behave differently, we solve problems and that benefits us much more in the longer term. Yeah, I like that. And I remember um, one thing, I think I was listening to another uh, podcast you did and you used an analogy, which I really liked, where you said, um, you know, we can look at the world through, or maybe it was in the book, you say, we look mm -hmm. through the, you can look through the world with like rose tinted glasses, yeah. but if you can take a step back and rather than looking through the glasses at the world, you look at the glasses themselves and you say, oh, yeah. I'm, I have on these rose tinted glasses. Why not switch them out for just my, my eyes or something like that. It's, I think that's a good way to look at, um, I think yeah. the idea of diffusing as well, right? Or other color glasses. It was Aaron T. Beck, the founder of cognitive therapy that used that analogy mm. to explain cognitive distancing. And in fact, the weird thing is, if you say you had blue glasses on, let's say that are kind of sad and, and you forget you've had them on for so long, you just assume that the world looks kind of sad and blue. Um, and it makes you feel sad when you view it that way. And then one day you, you, the glasses get knocked off and you suddenly realize that the world's more colorful and you could view it differently. And it wasn't the world that was blue, it was just the lenses and the glasses. But the weird thing about that is um, that you could then put the glasses back on and look at the world as being blue. But as long as you now know that the blueness is in the lenses and not in the world that you're looking at, even though you continue to look at it that way, it would affect you differently because you'd have made a mental separation between the blueness and the external events to which you're looking at. I mean, to put it crudely, you could also be wearing catastrophic colored glasses. Right. And you could realize that the catastrophizing is in the lenses, not in the external events. You know, the thing itself is just a natural phenomenon. Like, you know, uh, it's neither good nor bad. Um, you know, maybe what you and many, I think I may perhaps another way of helping to explain that is in therapy. Often people come into therapy because some life event, they've lost their job, they failed an exam, their, their, their wife has left them or something like that. Um, and it seems catastrophic to them. But, you know, it's surprising how often these apparent setbacks in life really do go on to be the best thing that ever happened to somebody. You know, um, I mean, you know, in a sense, it's a blessing if your partner leaves you and because if they didn't really love you in the first place, better off that the relationship ends and you find somebody who actually does love you, you know, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, most people in life end up out of habit or convenience stuck in jobs that aren't their ideal jobs. And probably the majority of people would benefit as time goes on from changing careers and trying something else. So uh, it's very often the case that what seems catastrophic at first actually in the longer term will work out to be the best for people. And uh, so realizing, you know, maybe you're looking at it through catastrophic colored glasses at the moment. Um, but perhaps there's another way of seeing it. And uh, often also as a therapist, it's obvious when people come out at the end of therapy, they usually have changed their perspective on things and 
and don't see them the the same way. They have uh, they see them more as opportunities, even you know setbacks that that seem bad. You 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 one way of looking at it as well is if if you um, if your life had been easy and you'd never failed at anything, and everybody had always agreed with you about everything you said. Like you're 17 years old or whatever, you're probably going to be a massive jerk. Like, <laughs> you know, you, if you look back in your life, you think probably, in all honesty, the things that have made you who you are, I know it's a cliche, are, are probably some of the setbacks and failures and problems that you've encountered along the way. They've shaped your character. And the best things about you probably come from the the fact that you've overcame obstacles and you've learned from setbacks and so on. Yeah. And I mean, I think what I think is super interesting is um, because you're talking about how things like, you know, the setbacks, like like getting dumped by your girlfriend or something like that, and how it can end up being something good for you. It reminds mm-hmm. me that the stoicism was almost founded on that basis, right? Because mm-hmm. the creator, Zeno, um, was a very prosperous merchant and, you know, in a shipwreck, l- suddenly lost all of that wealth. Mm-hmm. But he famously says like that was the most fortunate trip or fortunate thing that ever happened to him. That's a good Whereas example. Many, yeah. He turned that into an opportunity. Yeah. 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 And actually, you know, Greek tragedy makes this less than obvious because uh, Greek tragedy kind of specializes in reversals of fortune. So somebody um, seems to have good luck and it ends up working out badly for them or, you know, they seem to have a setback and it ends up being in their favor. Socrates liked to say that the people in Athens who complained about being poor and uh, obscure, not having any status or influence in society, after the 30 tyrants the uh, who were a, a dictatorial regime, that were a kind of military uh, junta that were put in charge of Athens after Athens was defeated by Sparta, at the end of the Peloponnesian War. It was a bad time for Athens. Um, well, you know, the the 30 tyrants rounded up all the wealthy people and executed them so that they could steal their property. And people of status and influence, they rounded up and persecuted and executed. And Socrates said, you guys are the, you guys who were complaining a few a year ago about how poor and like how you lacked status now, like, like you're counting your blessings now. Like, you know, isn't it weird? Like, you're the only ones. It's the rest of them got garroted and thrown in a pit or whatever. You know, like, you were lucky. Like, it turned out to to be for the best for you because you survived. Um, And so it's surprising what sometimes can be an advantage. Even physical illness or injury can sometimes be turned into something positive. It could be a learning experience and a thing that benefits us and, and makes us stronger. Um, if we can take it uh, the right way. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's really true and just important just to think about in our day-to-day lives. Um, One thing that I've really wanted to ask you about, because as someone who's aspiring to be, you know, a stoic myself, I I would say it's very daunting. You know what I mean? There's so many different um, aspects of stoicism that I feel like I have to do all at once. Um, So it's a little bit scary to get into. So what would you say are like three to five good things or activities or thoughts that people can work on, I guess, to get their foot in the door? Well, first of all, like, I mean, it's true that stoicism 
Like, although it's a, a philosophy as well, life, you, you know, we kind of have to read the ancient texts and stuff. And the easiest one to read is Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Right? It's the by far the most widely read ancient Stoic text. And there are also many modern books on Stoicism. So the reading part, like, you know, if you, there's easier texts that people can focus on to begin with. In terms of practicing Stoicism as a way of life, like, I think some of the things I already mentioned, actually, you know, just... Learning to, first of all, Stoicism involves a kind of mindfulness practice called prosoche. Um, and it just means paying attention to your thoughts. And I'd say, if you want to practice it, try it as often as you can. But particularly when you're getting angry or upset, try, first of all, to notice it as early as you can. Or let me phrase that differently. Try to notice it earlier than you normally do, like to go further to catch it earlier, um, to spot it coming when you get angry? Like, do you begin to, does your voice change? Like, do, does this look in your face change a little bit? Do you tense up a little bit? Are there particular situations or things that people say that are kind of tend to trigger your anger or anxiety? So catch it earlier. And then notice what the thoughts and beliefs are that contribute to your emotions intensifying. That's the main thing. Often a great deal can be achieved just with awareness alone. You don't need to do anything else in many cases. Because when you catch it early enough and notice what's actually happening, that will often liberate you um, from the, the cycle of negative emotions. That's, that's definitely something you can do. And I think another thing that people can benefit from is really... Stoicism fundamentally is an ethic that has psychological implications. And so people, you know, they they come for the emotional resilience building, but they, they stay for the virtue ethic, as it were, right? There's a, you know, that was always the case in the ancient world. People were attracted to Stoicism. It's kind of a therapy uh, implicit in it. It helps you with your emotions, but it's not really the core of Stoicism. The core of Stoicism is even deeper. It's a, a set of values. And the values of Stoicism begin with a kind of negative revelation, as I would put it. And the negative revelation is, brace yourself for this, kids, why the, the prevailing values of your society are maybe bad values. Why there may be, in many ways, some of the prevailing values of society are kind of hedonistic, narcissistic, consumerist, celebrity culture. Like, at some level, we kind of realize this is, there's a lot of BS like, <laughs> in society. Um, the things that people act as if are really important are a good example. My favorite example at the moment is Bugatti cars. Mm. Like, for instance, like are, are maybe not really a good indication of, of value uh, in life. Maybe wealth isn't what it's all about. And so something that people can practice, here's a technique for you. Imagine mm. that you're about to die. You know, we might as well, let's cut to the chase and skip right to the end. Like, so, like Socrates, you're raising the hemlock cup to your lips, as I like to say, and you're about to take the fatal sip that's going to close your eyes for eternity. And at that moment, you look back on your life and you ask yourself a couple of questions. You think, well, what was it that I seemed to place most value on in life? And a way of answering that is to say, what did I spend most of my time actually doing? Like, and I guess that's what I acted as if I valued, right? Yesterday, the day before, what did you spend most of your time doing and thinking about? And as you're about to uh, pass uh, away for eternity, imagine that you're looking back from that perspective and 
uh, asking yourself, were those things really that important? Did they make life worth living? Did having one, two, three, four, or even 30 Bugatti cars <laughs> make life worth living? Or from that perspective, does that seem a wee bit ridiculous? Like, yeah. And possibly foolish? Like, maybe. And and maybe there are other things. Like, everyone else is running around trying to get, just having, getting 10,000 followers on social media seem kind of absurd. Like, uh, when you're looking back on it. You know, does watching loads of sitcoms or spending like half your life playing video games seem like a good investment of your time in retrospect? I mean, you know, only you can answer these questions for yourself, but your perspective is probably going to shift. And I hate to break it to you, but, you know, that's where you're going to end up for sure eventually. Uh, everyone, like, unless, you know, like you suddenly get struck by lightning, you don't have a chance to think about it. But everybody at some point gets towards the end of their life and they do look back and they right. think, did I spend my life wisely or foolishly? Um, and so you can save yourself a lot of heartache by imagining it, like skipping forward in time and, and looking back on things. And actually what people sometimes say that reminds them of, although aside from all the things in ancient philosophy, is every Christmas on British TV, anyway, we have uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, mm. even the Muppet version. <laughs> but, like, it's a Muppet Christmas Carol. And Ebenezer Scrooge is taken forward in time by the ghost of Christmas yet to come, and he shows him his funeral and the tombstone, I think, with his, his name, Ebenezer Scrooge, on it. And he has this kind of epiphany, and he thinks, you know, maybe I was obsessed with money. He's a miser. Like, and it's not really the most important thing in life. He goes back and he changes his ways and he, he starts to be kinder to, to people and to engage more uh, with the people around him and try and use his money um, for good things. Like a lot of the things that people value, they're duped by a very simple mistake, I think. Um, and that is some things in life have intrinsic value and other things in life have uh, instrumental value. The value is a means to an end. And a classic example would be money. So money is just like bits of paper right? Uh, or numbers on a computer screen, right? A good example is if you're in your final moments and you've got a million dollars in your bank account, but you've never spent it. I mean, what what was the point of it in a way if you never actually spent it on anything, right? It's like you were storing it up in order one day to do something really cool with it, but then you got struck by lightning or hit by a bus. Like, right. Yeah, it seems completely pointless then, right? Like, you might as well not have had it. You just didn't use it for anything. But also in a sense having a million followers or whatever on social media is like you're storing it up because you could potentially influence people in a positive direction or do something really cool with it. There's no point having influence unless you use it to, right. like, to in some sort of constructive way, right? So a lot of the things we value are things that are only potentially of value as a means to an end, but we treat them as if they're the end in itself and they're of intrinsic value. Socrates made this point nearly two and a half thousand years ago he said, what matters is whether you use these things wisely or foolishly. Most of the things that people value are actually of no intrinsic value in themselves. They're merely external advantages or opportunities, you know, and they only become valuable if you actually use them in a good way, in a wise way, in accord with justice or virtue. And then you've got to dig deeper and ask yourself, well, how do I need to use things in order to make them of value? What are the intrinsic qualities that give life value, some kind of wisdom or something, I guess. 
Like, and how am I going to get that? My little girl, um, my daughter's 11 now, but since she was six years old, I talked to her about philosophy. And I'd say to her, what is wisdom? We should ask ourselves, um, what is wisdom? Socrates spent a lot of time asking people that question and similar related questions. But people spend a lot of time doing personal development stuff today. They seldom ask themselves what they really think wisdom consists in. So I would encourage people simply to answer that question. What is it that makes someone wise? What does wisdom actually uh, consist in? And, and how would you achieve it? And I think a very simple answer to that question is that in order to achieve wisdom, I think, like Socrates, the simplest thing you could possibly derive from Socrates is it's going to involve asking questions. Mm. That's what the Socratic method is. But particular questions, the right questions. And, you know, to come, you might think, well, that's easy, don't it? It's like, all it is, you just got to ask a bunch of questions. Surely we do that already. I think we live in a society where we're kind of encouraged to do the complete opposite. Like social media, in a sense, um, processes information for us, and we drink from a fire hose like of pre-digested, manipulated information. We don't have time to think. Like You don't have to think anymore. You just watch a YouTube video. Like, it tells you what to think. Like, there's no opportunity really to engage in in debate like there was in the past. Social media effectively shuts down to a large extent debate. Especially, think- especially with AI. Sorry to jump in, yeah. but I mean, I've realized now, like, you know, Chat GPT is coming in super popular. And I have, you know, peers in school who will just have their entire opinions formed by AI. Yeah. Like they'll have an essay on, you know, some some something in history and yeah. they just have the AI write it and they don't get to formulate their own thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, what's wrong with that? Like, well, what's wrong with that is that if Socrates is right and, you know, the, the most important thing in life is achieving a kind of moral or practical wisdom, you're completely delegating that to a piece of technology. You're depriving yourself of the ability to develop uh, thinking skills I, and wisdom, the ability to think for yourself. I mean, in you know, you're in the same way if you drive around in a car, you're not using your legs. Like if you use AI, you're no longer really using your brain. Like you're just getting something else to do the thinking for you. Like, which is great. I mean, maybe AI is now wise and virtuous, but you're not. Like, and this is again like the what the problem Socrates saw in the sophists. So they would give speeches explaining virtue and wisdom to people. It sounds really cool. But then the young men that listened to the speeches would just kind of parrot it, regurgitate it. And when Socrates got asked some questions about it, they said, I don't know, I can't. I'm just repeating what Protagoras told me. Like, <laughs> this is what everyone is saying. It's the kind of the latest, greatest fad about, you know, what life is about or what justice consists in. And Socrates would say, but these are things that you're just repeating that other people have said that you, you haven't figured that out for yourself. He compares, he says it's the difference between opinion and and knowledge, genuine knowledge. And Socrates says the difference between opinion and knowledge is like having a, a an opinion, even if it's a true opinion, is is like being on the right path going through a forest. Um but if you lack knowledge, it's like if you got lost and you wouldn't know how to find the path again. Like you don't know how you got there in the first place. Like you didn't you wouldn't know how to defend that opinion against criticism. You wouldn't understand exceptions to it or situations where it needs to be modified or no longer applies. There's no nuance to your thinking if you've just acquired it. And I think really one of the biggest problems that we face is that in order to 
pass on any information. We usually have to simplify and make generalizations. And where people really fall down, there's some research that supports this as well, that when we receive information passively, we tend to apply it more rigidly. Um, so if somebody says, you see this in therapy all the time. So therapists and self-help gurus will say things like, oh, it's really good to uh, speak your mind. Like, well, until it's not. Like <laughs> some people say, what you need to do is really practice mindful acceptance. Well, sometimes the what you need to do is change things. Like, you know, and real wisdom would consist in knowing when you should accept things and when you should try and change them or when you should speak your mind and when you should sit down and shut up. Like that's what yeah. real wisdom would consist in, right? But what you tend to get are kind of prefabricated generalizations from gurus and books. And, you know, this is the problem that Socrates saw. Like, so we only by thinking for ourselves, like, do we get the knack of spotting exceptions uh, and learning the the limitations of a piece of advice or a rule? Um, I mean, the famous example is in the dialogue called the Lacques. Socrates asks an Athenian general to define what courage consists in. And he says the most obvious answer he can think of, which is the Athenians, like most Greeks, fought in a phalanx formation. And so he said, the main thing we have to drum into the soldiers is that you've got to stay in formation and stand your ground. Like, and that's what courage consists in. And, and typically, if someone's a coward, they'll break formation and they'll run away. So courage consists in standing your ground. And Socrates says, that, that makes perfect sense. You're right as far as it goes. But what if you're in the cavalry like, and they have to charge at the enemy? It doesn't make sense to say courage consists in standing your ground. You do the opposite. And he said also, what if you're having to retreat and fight the enemy at the same time? It often happens in warfare. Then you're not standing your ground. But people often exhibit great courage when they're fighting a tactical retreat. Um, or the Spartans don't fight in phalanx formation at that time. Like They charge into the enemy. So would you say that the Spartans lack courage? And also he says, you're only talking about warfare. What about uh, in times of peace? Like how could courage be exhibited? So your definition only works within a very limited scope. Like, and you'd have to be a Socrates, the sort of guy that goes, yes, but what about this? What about that? Like to have the cognitive flexibility to think that definition works in this situation, but you need to modify it for all these other situations. And that that's why he was wise, like, and why he thought sophists and educators in the ancient world were making people stupider. Why? <laughs> by giving them ideas that the, the most dangerous ideas are the ones that aren't obviously false, but that seem true, like, but are only true sometimes. And right. we, we run into problems when we go, this is a great idea. Yeah, no, I should t totally like tidy my room or make my bed or whatever. And that's what self-development is all about, right? Yeah, it's a great idea, except when it isn't. Like, you know, so maybe sometimes that becomes a form of avoidance like, or it becomes obsessive or, you know, like it's not always the solution. Like maybe sometimes it is. And so the, the trick would be getting the type of wisdom that would allow you to evaluate your coping strategies. Like that would be like this cliche about, you know, not, not just giving a man a fish, but teaching him how to fish. Right. Like, it'd be better if we taught people how to figure out their own self-improvement strategies in that regard. Like that's what they would really benefit. And that in a way is what ancient philosophy aimed to do, I think, is to encourage more thinking, more use of reason. Yeah. And I mean, to your point about the sophists and and kind of the problem of regurgitation of a lot of um, 
knowledge these days. I, I really liked in your book, another analogy you used is of the sheep. You say like, or maybe, yeah. I, maybe you're quoting one of the ancient philosophers. You say, Epictetus. A, a, yeah, you says the, sh- the sheep doesn't eat grass and then regurgitate it in front of his shepherd to show all that he's eaten. He mm-hmm. eats the grass and then turns that into fuel for his body and good wool and good healthy meat and whatever. And I think that's something really important to keep in mind, which is, you know, when you're listening to podcasts to try and improve watching these gurus, whatever, I mean, you have to, and even in just in school, when you're learning from from the teacher, you have to take that information and actually turn it into something and practice it yourself rather than just kind of going around saying, Oh, this is what I believe in blah, blah, blah. You have to actually kind of use it effectively. The other example Epictetus gives is he said it would be as if somebody bought some weights, like dumbbells, like, and you went around their house and, uh, and they were like, hey, check out my dumbbells, they're really cool, they cost like loads of money and stuff. And Epictetus would say, but like, you should show me your, the muscles that you've developed from right. using dumbbells. Like, owning the dumbbells is kind of pointless unless you actually, it doesn't matter how much they cost either. Like, what matters <laughs> is like whether you've actually been using them. Like, and you attain some benefit from them. And or the other example he'd give is when people say that they've read loads of, in the ancient world, like, you'd say, some of you guys are just going on about how you've read all these books on Stoicism. He's always having a go at his students about that. And he said, it's worthless unless you actually put it into practice. He said, he has this conversation with his own students. Like, he, you know, he kind of berates them about having read Chris Ipus, who, who wrote really long, complicated books on Stoicism. Uh, and Epictetus said, it doesn't matter. You could, you know, tell me all day about, you know, how you figured out these arguments in Chris Ipus, or you've memorized everything he said in a certain subject. But he said, that, you know, I'm not interested in that. You know, what I want to see is that you can exhibit you've, the, the fact that you've improved your character and you've become a wiser, like more self-disciplined, more courageous, more just and kind individual. Like, show me the evidence, like, of uh, that you've actually attained some benefit from these things. He says. Yeah, um, and I want to respect your time, but there's one more question uh, I want to ask you, which is just um, the idea uh, in stoicism of goods, bads, and then the indifferent and mm-hmm. the idea of preferred indifferences, I think would be re- really valuable to people listening to kind of hear about that. I think one of the easiest, I'll be, I mean, give a slightly simplified answer to that. I think often the Stoics, to some extent, are trying to articulate things that are, are relatively common sense in a way. Um, and sometimes it kind of gets lost. Like they, they, they have to give technical explanations of things that could be put more simply. I think the challenge for the Stoics is to figure out how you can care about things, but not care too much. How can you care enough without caring too much? So most people go to one extreme or the other. They think they either worry and become neurotic about politics or their friends or whatever, or they they, they say, I'm I'm just going to not care anymore. Like, I'm going to shut up, I can't handle it. Like, I'm going to stop watching the news. I'm, I'm not going to listen to any of my friends' problems anymore. I'm going to kind of cut them off or whatever. Like, and the Stoics think, well, really the ideal, surely, would be the, to, if you look around, what do we admire in other people? We admire people that care enough, but not too much, not neurotically. Right? So how could you do that? You know, you'd need to have a way of looking at the world that assigns some kind of value to external things, even if they're not directly under our control, but doesn't assign too much value, not so much value that they become all important. Right? We drive ourselves crazy. 
And Epictetus is where putting it is to say, look, if you place intrinsic value in things that are not directly under your control, then you that's a recipe for neurosis. Like the, the most important thing in the universe is something that I don't control. Like, <laughs> you know, well, let's, you may as well give up, right? Like, right. It's a bit of a non-starter, right? So Epictetus says you kind of need to recalibrate your values so that for you, the most important thing in the universe becomes something that's directly under your control. It's the way that you conduct yourself. Like it's your character, um, whether you act with wisdom, justice, and integrity, and stuff like that. You can choose from moment to moment, the least to have the intention to do that, if nothing else. Um, but then, what are you going to go around doing? Like you know, you you're going to have to try and help other people and improve society. You're going to write books and teach people and make videos. And, you know, interact with the world. That's how you exhibit wisdom and share it with other people. That's how you exercise justice and courage and self-discipline. So you have to place some kind of value in external things, but it needs to be a kind of very secondary value and a qualified value. So Epictetus says it's preferable to be healthy. It's preferable to have a certain amount of money. But the wise man or woman doesn't see that as the be-all and end-all of life. They don't need... The, at one point, I think Seneca says the wise man or wise woman prefers to have friends, but he doesn't feel that he needs to have them. He's not dependent on them. Mm. Um, and so we would pursue um, justice in the world. We try to educate and reform people. We try to meet uh, good friends and like-minded people. We, you know, we try to have sufficient property um, to live our lives uh, in the way that we want. But the Stoics think what's more important is that we have uh, moral wisdom and excellence of character. So these other things seem uh, not trivial, but of relatively relatively unimportant, of secondary importance compared to our core values, which are what's directly under our control. Um, Cicero says that the Stoics thought anyone who believed that everything external is completely indifferent was actually a fool <laughs> um, because you know how would you ever you know make any decisions about interacting with the world and you know doing anything you have to place some value on certain things and uh, you know seek to uh, remove or avoid other things um, and wisdom consists in making those judgments um, according to reason um, but not making them the meaning of your life. Like, right. You know, if you fail to succeed. So Stoics pursue external goals with what they call the reserve clause is another good way of explaining it. So they say, you know, uh, I'm going to try and help this person as best I can, uh, fate permitting, or if nothing prevents me. So they try to do something while simultaneously reminding themselves that the outcome isn't directly under the control and so they're ready uh, to accept the fact that they might fail. So in a sense, Stoics, when they pursue external outcomes, are always prepared in advance for the possibility of failure. Like, or they uh, aim for the best, hope for the best, and prepare for the worst, as the cliche has it. You know, And so they're never shocked by setbacks or failure. Right. They know um, that the outcome of our actions isn't 100% up to us in any given situation. But nevertheless, there are certain things. And, and Marcus Aurelius, for example, says that 
his goal was to direct all of his actions ultimately towards the common welfare of mankind, which mm. is probably easier if you're a Roman emperor yeah. to envisage. You have a bit more influence there. Huh? Yeah, it sounds a bit grandiose if you or I say it, but like Marcus Aurelius says it. You think, okay, yeah, that seems like a reasonable goal for a Roman emperor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he says everything he does, he asks himself, does this contribute towards the common welfare of, of mankind? You know, um, well, but he also accepts the fact that he might fail to achieve that right? because he might make mistakes. There might be things that don't turn out as he expected. Um, but nevertheless, does he, should he give up? I say, well, there's no point trying uh, to benefit mankind, you know, because sometimes I fail. Like, or does he think, no, virtue consists in trying to do it anyway while simultaneously accepting that you're not always going to succeed. Right. Well, thank you so much, Donald Robertson. Really um, enjoyed having you here. Um, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, thank And thank you for everything. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, well, very, very nice. Uh, I will send you the recording and yeah. um, I will do some editing on my end before I post it. Um, but mm-hmm. you can kind of do whatever with um, what meters okay if i post it and my yeah, yeah of uh, course of course okay cool let's do that, that. then we'll, 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 we'll cross post it or whatever you like you share it with your audience i'll share it with mine and um, we'll get, yeah, get awesome. to more people that way awesome okay thank you so much John thank you Bye-bye. Cheers, bye-bye